Welcome to PX20. My name is Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my wonderful colleague Peter Jewell. Today we're honoured to be interviewing a man from the great state of WA, a Dockers man who plays the guitar, has been, a series of, has been in a series of rock bands, is an avid Nick Cave fan and is one of Melbourne's coolest barristers, Nick Tweedy. Now, before we get into it, a quick reminder to our listeners to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for further bios and photos of each of our podcast guests. Or if you have any feedback, please email us on planningexchange at gmail.com. Welcome, Nick. Is that the best introduction you've ever had? It is the best introduction by a long row and also the most inaccurate. (laughs) Thanks for both of those. Nick, Nick, moving to Melbourne, what, almost 20 years ago, originally you were a criminal lawyer and then you moved into planning? Yes, or as a name tag once said, criminal, comma, lawyer. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes, I did. I, practiced, I started my career in WA at the what was then Crown Law, moved to the DPP and did some defence work. So all I'd ever done before I came to Melbourne essentially was criminal law. Hmm. And uh, you're across what's happening in the urban area because of all your advocacy work. What urban trends at the moment are inspiring you? Um, well, there's not a lot that's inspiring me that's happening in my work, but um, <laughs> I think that what what I like about Melbourne and one of the reasons I moved from Perth to Melbourne is that I like the fact that people in Melbourne make use of the city as a whole rather than just having their house as their sort of fiefdom or kingdom. So in Perth, it's very much about who's got the best backyard, very self-contained, it's all about having a barbecue and having people over. I like the fact that in Melbourne, you can have a a house, which is, or an apartment or something that's small, a place you go to, but you know, you have a picnic out in the road reserve or you go down to the local pub or or you, you extend, you use the whole all the all the area of the city rather so, than just your own land. So it's that sort of third place concept. Yeah. I think it's having a having a not wanting to have, not needing to have your house as the be all and end all of your sort of life. And would you say you're a Melbourne man now, or do, are you still totally. very much a WA man? No. I, well, apart from my you know fairly tragic attachment to the Fremantle Dockers, I think that's my really my last vestige of. Um, West Australianism. We'll get that um, out of you, don't worry. Yes, well, no, I don't think you ever will. It's sort of like a like a long-term infection <laughs> or one of those parasites you get in your gut that won't go away. Uh, Nick, what do you know now um, that you didn't know five years ago? Uh, I know what it's like to wear glasses and be unable to read menus in, um, <laughs> in poorly lit um, environments. Um, yeah, that's, uh, apart from that, I think I've, I know a bit more about, um, I know a lot more about advocacy than I did five years ago. Cause I think, uh, being a barrister, you're sort of always on a, hopefully you're always on a progression, uh, and a learning progression. Mm-hmm. Just about that advocacy, um, you're offered VCAT and panels, Victoria. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes for a good advocate? Uh, I think. One of the things that is essential for a good advocate is to make things simple. A lot of people down at VCAT seem to think that their job is to make things more complex, but uh, I've always thought that the only real value in having an advocate, not the only real, but the main value is to make things simple, to make it easier for whoever's making the decision to make a decision in your favour. And that means giving them you know, one good point 
not 50 half good points, for example. Mm. And what about some of the most common mistakes made by expert witnesses? Well, I think the biggest mistake you can make as an expert witness is to not be independent. I think it gets pretty clear pretty quickly when people are, expert witnesses are becoming advocates as opposed to truly independent people. And I think that's uh, not necessarily a very common mistake, but it is a fatal mistake because once you get the reputation as being someone who'll just say whatever your client wants, uh, it really does diminish substantially the value of your, your um, evidence. And just following that third question, what what do you look for in a decision maker? In a decision opinion? maker? Mm. Um, I, I think the, the, the best decision makers are people who start a case and finish a case with an open mind. I think the worst decision makers are people who come in with preconceived notions, either because of what they've read in the case or because of their own personal prejudices. And everything in the case, evidence, submissions, gets smashed into that sort of uh, framework. So people who already know the outcome before the case starts and then try and work backwards from that. I think, But good decision makers realise that preconceptions aren't always right and that they can be sometimes, that even things that look very clear and or very compelling on, on the surface level, after testing, after a hearing, can actually... Um, you can change your mind. So there are the decision makers that do that who are prepared to listen and prepared to be persuaded are usually the best ones, I think. Now, what part of your work do you most like and what parts do you dislike? I love interviews. <laughs> no, um, I, I mean, I like being in court. I like uh, cross-examining people. I like making legal submissions. The intellectual challenge and the sort of performance challenge is the only reason while I'm still a lawyer, I don't like particularly being stuck in the office, you know, working through volumes of material. You've got to do it, but it's not the best fun in the world. You do have a wonderful view, though. I do have a wonderful have view. Yes, I do view. now. Mm. Out across, across Port Phillip Bay. Mm. Um, yes, I didn't always have a wonderful view. Um, <laughs> we moved up here to uh, the top floor at Owen Dixon West, I think it's almost three years ago now. Before that, I had a wonderful view of a blank wall, <laughs> all about ten meters away. It was Nick, almost as good a view as you get at VCAT. We, we, we've always, we've, we've all had one of those, Nick. Indeed, <laughs> and that's good for you. It's less distracting. Um, can we speak about the power of predictions from the seventies onwards? We can, yes. Well, what do you suspect? Many predictions are not factoring in. Uh, I think it's interesting the way that people predict, try and predict how society is going to evolve, and inevitably get it wrong. Um, not, I think what people misunder more usually are not very good at predicting what people are going to find entertaining or of value to them in the future. And that really dictates how things evolve. So for example, in the seventies, everyone was thinking, oh, in the future, it'll all be rocket cars and personal jetpacks, and everyone will live in the city, cities in the sky. But in fact, what we got is really small phones incredibly powerful computers and incredibly powerful video games. So no one really predicted that computers and mobile phones and that sort of communication was going to become more important than personal transport. So yeah, I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm, I think they just, 
people looking forward sometimes find it difficult to understand the snowballing effect of development and technology. Well, is that the sort of tangents that can come off? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you whole. I mean, for example, like with mobile phones. I remember when I first became a barrister, swearing that I would never have a mobile phone <laughs> because that's what yuppies have. And now, you know, it's sort of welded to my hand. And no one would have, no one anticipated that you could make it not only a communication device but also the sort of centre of your social world. I mean, I don't really know how to use a lot of the social media stuff, but you look at the way people communicate now through those devices and it's completely different to the way that I communicated when I was younger or even now. Don't worry, before we go, we'll set you up on um, on Facebook. You need to like the Planning Exchange okay. Facebook page. I do Very have important. a Facebook page. It's used about <laughs> once a year. <laughs> now, Nick, can we talk about the idea of in, that information wants to be free? Can you see a time when all planning information is available to anyone? Well, I certainly hope so. I can't see any reason why any planning information would be um, not available. I mean, it's all matters of public interest. I mean, I always find it just bizarre when you have a council in a case saying, you know, you're you're an objector or you're an applicant sometimes, and you say, well, can I have a look at the internal memo? And they say no. Mm. But then they turn up at the hearing and start reading from it. So I, I just think that's uh, a very misguided view. And I can't see any real justification for suppressing planning information. What's that saying? The best uh, disinfectant is open is sunlight or something like that? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think, I mean, leaving aside that, that, you know, the uh, avoiding the potential for corruption, I think it also improves people's work. If you know that someone can have access to your work, um, or your opinions or the advice you're giving, I would have thought that, that it necessarily makes you a little bit more careful about mm. and a little, but it's also just transparency. I think decisions that are made that affect the wider public should be transparent for a whole number of reasons. As always, I'd like to give a special shout out to our wonderful sponsor Maddox, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. When you need a compelling advocate for VCAT, planning panels, advisory committees and higher courts on appeals, Maddox has got you covered. Please refer to their website at www.maddox.com.au for further details. Nick, your father was a librarian. How has this influenced how you order and process things? And also, can you talk about the technologies you embrace or want to embrace? The librarian question first. Oh, the librarian question. Well, I, I organise my entire CD collection by the Dewey Decimal. Um, not a lot of people wouldn't know what that is. No, this is a, isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> I don't know what um, that no, is I'm not, either. <laughs> I, I mean, I know what it is, but... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure my dad was a particularly good organiser of information. Every time I went to the... He worked at Murdoch University for most of his career. And most of the time when I went and visited him, he'd just be sitting there reading books. <laughs> oh, I'm just putting it on the shelf. So he certainly gave me a love of reading um, and literature and, and that sort of, you know, uh, books in general. Um, and how do I organise things now? Um, I'm not a great organiser. I'm getting better though, very much getting better because it's it's another thing that you have to be to be a good advocate is you have to be organised. And it's not just in 
it's knowing in the in that sort of in the five minutes or the, the the moment, not the five minutes, in the moment when you're cross-examining, you need to know exactly where all the documents you're relying upon are. And so I've become a lot better at it. I was fairly slapdash to start off with. Do you see a time where um, the legal profession will move to more of an electronic system? Yes. Well, I think it's inevitable and it mm. would be a good thing. I, I'm sort of making, I make efforts to move towards um, an electronic system, um, certainly just in terms of the volume of work. So now, like, for example, I've just finished doing a, the, um, acting as counsel assisting on the Metro Rail um, inquiry. And, you know, the volume of physical volume of materials there, about, looking there, it's probably about 20 or 30 lever arch files, mm. but it also fits quite comfortably on a MacBook Air. Um, so rather than you know, pedalling home on my bike with five lever arch volumes, which I would have done 10 years ago, I can just pack this into the backpack and away you go. Mm. So I'd love to be. And, and again, it's, I'm, one of the things that I am disappointed at is that I'm increasingly becoming less literate. Mm. Again, 10 years ago, I could have, I knew how all the technology worked. Now I have no idea how most of it works. Just, can we move on um, just to talk about some of the built form reviews that are going on at the moment? Um, do you think we're going back to the future by talking about plot ratios and the like and some very ambiguous bonus provisions in the new um, revised planning schemes? Uh, yes, very much. Well, that seems to be the way we're going, particularly the only sort of most obvious example is the uh, City of Melbourne built form review, which I was involved in for a client. And uh, I must say on a personal and professional level, uh, regardless of what my client had to do for my client, I was uh, very, I was professionally disappointed at what was being put forward. I think it is a very retrograde step and one that's um, not in the best interests of Melbourne as a city. I, I, I struggle with how using the very blunt instrument of plot ratios is... Um, helpful to achieve good built form outcomes or good building. Mm. And I really struggle, and I could go on for hours and hours about this, with the way in which they constructed the uh, floor area ratio bonus um, provisions. Mm. I think they were very poorly constructed and generally a bad idea. If I was to be absolutely frank about it, it seemed to me to be a way of um, formalising corruption or bribery you can buy you can buy a big building you mm. can't have a good big building just on its own merits mm. you have to pay for it just just to, to explain to our readers what that's about nick so well basically the basic way it worked was that buildings within the central city were to be required to be reach a certain plot ratio 16 to 1 or 1 to 16 uh, and then other than uh, if they were to exceed that they could only exceed it by way of um, securing a agreement with the responsible authority to provide a public benefit. That opens up all sorts of um, murky dealings and favouritism, I would think. Very much so, particularly as the term public benefit was not going to be defined in the planning control, but would have been somewhat defined, or at least uh, guidelines were to be put forward by the minister. I think we all know in the planning profession that having documents that sit outside the planning scheme is not a particularly desirable or transparent way to go forward. 
are there other states in, in Australia that actually have this pot ratio or is Melbourne the first one? Well, I, I understand that Sydney does have some form of plot ratio controls. And that was part of the, what I felt again was some of the, uh, cherry picking. Yeah. And look, to be frank, intellectual dishonesty that underpinned a lot of the built form review is that there was this sort of global reference to the fact, oh, cities all over the world have plot ratio mm. and they do, but they're not used in the equivalent way. And simply saying that a city has a plot ratio or a control, unless you know every detail of it and how it's been applied, um, is totally unhelpful. It's like mm. saying, well, it's just as simplistic as saying, well, they've got a control over built form. Well, mm. whoopie do. Mm. So again, I think that, uh, yes, other jurisdictions, other cities in the world do still use plot ratio. They use it in very different ways. Um, but that doesn't mean it's right. And it doesn't mean it's right in the Melbourne, um, way. And I think it's a very simplistic, again, a simplistic tool. It gets you to a certain point. What I really object to is using it as being the ultimate arbiter of what makes a good building. I think that, and making it mandatory, except for the payment of this amorphous or the delivery of this very amorphous and ill-defined public benefit. Well, I don't see how that's a good idea for anybody. Mm. Nick, the planning goes through spurts of um, progressive, you know, mm -hmm. a liberal approach. Yep. And then there's sort of a counter view. Yeah. We seem to be in a very, you know, that whole performance-based approach, yes. talking about good outcomes. And then there's like a pushback yep. to gain back more control. It seems that the last five years has been particularly illiberal period. I'm talking about the new zones. In, yes. And now the other, con the more and more controls are coming in. How does the profession resist that sort of thing? Um, yes. How does the profession do it? Or, or, the, or the collective, which is the planning world. Yeah. I'm talking about the legal, the, you know, the, the sure, whole sure. Mm. Uh, anyone involved. Well, I think, I think we should resist it. Um, my own view is that, the, you know, the basis of the VPP schemes that we're going to move away from mandatory controls and go to decision-based, um, policy-driven decisions was a fundamentally sound idea. And um, it is disappointing to see that people are, seem to be trying to move away from it simply on the basis that they don't like what's been delivered. Now, everyone can have different views about whether they like um, particular buildings or particular urban design outcomes. But simply saying, I don't like it, is not a sound basis to change our tax. And again, simply saying, well, look, there's a whole lot of tall buildings in the central city. Well, there might be, but you really have to demonstrate, has society suffered as a, or has the city suffered as a consequence of that? rather than just saying, look, they're big, it's different, I don't like it. Mm. The fact of the matter is that those big buildings house people, mm. people that otherwise would not be living in the central central or, Melbourne. Or, or within and maybe would, 15 Ks. Exactly. They wouldn't and be, mm. the whole, everyone understands or should understand the benefits of urban consolidation and putting people in and around employment and transport centres. Those are fundamental planning principles and I think they've been and eroded significantly in the last few years for no good reason that I can think of other than that a lot of people with um, entrenched interests 
a lot of people who have the benefits of living in, you know, suburbs and big houses that they bought back in the 50s or the 60s for bargain prices, that they don't like the way that the community's evolving. And I don't think that's a good idea or a good reason to change what was a sound way forward and a way forward that was originally designed by people, professionals. And it comes down to personal opinion as well as to what constitutes a good apartment, what's good design and what I want to live in might be very different to what you want to live in. Yeah, I think Mm. it's very difficult for people who haven't lived in an apartment, who aren't used to the new urban morphology or the new way of living that, Mm. you know, people in their 20s or 30s live now. I think it's very difficult for them to comprehend how it is or why it is that people either can or would prefer to live in smaller houses but have the benefits of being close to the place they work, Mm. you know. Again, me growing up in Perth, it's difficult to comprehend how someone can survive without a car because you couldn't certainly ride your bike anywhere in Perth without probably getting hit by a truck or um, something like that. But in Melbourne, it is a perfectly viable lifestyle choice in parts of Melbourne to not have a car. I suppose using that car analogy, Nick, you know, not everyone wants to drive a Commodore. Um, True. With apartments, there is a whole range and the market can accommodate for yeah. th- those choices. Yeah, I think we should be giving a little bit more credit to people's choices. Uh, again, uh, it's very not often that people are forced to live in particular houses, it does happen, but by by and large, people make choices about where they want to live and by and large, everybody has to compromise something. You either get, you either take the benefits of being close to public transport, close to the cafes, close to the things you love at a price you can afford and you trade that off for having a a, a not as big or a different form of housing and Mm. the you accept the problems that come along with that or the the downsides of it. The same way as if you would prefer to live in a big house with a big bit of land, well, you're going to be in one of the outer suburbs or in a more expensive location. So everything, I don't think there's any perfect way of living unless you live in Turak and you've got Mm. millions of dollars. But Mm. In fact, I wouldn't want to live in Turak even with millions of dollars. But, you know, unless you've got unlimited funds, there's no sort of perfect lifestyle. So everyone's choosing and should be allowed to choose what they think is best for them. Does that mean that we should free up the housing market for the middle and the outer suburbs so there's more choice, so that you don't have to live above a train station if you want to live in a yeah. you know, mid-rise apartment? Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I, again, you, you talked about the residential zones. I find, again, I think the residential zones and the introduction of the neighbourhood residential zone was a, a terrible idea. And again, it's a political idea it doesn't have any real planning merit to it. Um, you know, I remember when it was being touted, this will protect heritage. That was mm. one of the, the, the misinformations being put forward by those who advocated for it. And I think that people are going to regret, even the people that advocated for it, are soon going to regret the fact that in 10, 15, 20 years, there's not going to be different housing choices available in these places where they're currently living or where they want to live, mm. or at least not the necessary range and cost point of these housing choices. Planning policies go through both the Department of Planning and Panels Victoria. 
whereas planning applications and disputes are determined by VCAP. Do you think there's a case for merging these two bodies? Would there be any advantages to that? I do think there's a case for it, and I think there would be some considerable advantages. Um, apart from the fact that having planning panels a part of VCAT rather than a division of department, um, that increases transparency and increases independence. I'm not suggesting people who sit as panels are not independent, but they are very much... The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it's still a division of the department. So it's, a, it's an arm of government, whereas VCAT, yes, it's an arm of government, but you have, hopefully, or some people at VCAT have tenure and they can make decisions um, that are either in reality or at least perceived to be more independent. So there's that. But I also think that what, I've, what, you, what we've seen in the last, again, maybe five or ten years is an increasing detachment between the people who are writing planning policies and the people who are giving effect to them. Mm. And unless you're down there on a day-to-day -day basis actually trying to interpret a policy and apply it to a particular application in a particular circumstance, you don't understand, I don't think, sufficiently how, how, what, what are good policies and what are not. Mm and what is needed and what is not. And so you don't you, understand the impact of those policies as well. Absolutely yeah. correct. I mean, the, you know, I, I read a DDO the other day that ran to about 20 pages mm. and of at least 15 of those pages just repeated obvious things. I mean, I don't think you need to write into a design and development overlay be site responsive mm. or, you know, respect local character or, or those sort of generic motherhood statements. And you get got pages and pages of that. And then, again, pages and pages and pages of particular setbacks to particular interfaces on precincts and sub-precincts. Mm. And it just, I think it just, I don't know, the people who are writing it seem to be people who aren't very good at making planning decisions. So they think that everyone, everything has to be spelt out. Well, mm. I don't, th I think we should have more faith in the profession of that and the decision makers and in designers and think, well, we don't need to tell everyone what the setback to a side boundary needs to be. Let's just work it out on a case-by-case -case basis and come mm -hmm. up with what's best. And that's where I think separating out um, statutory planning and strategic planning is not necessarily helpful. Again, I, I agree with you. I think you've Because got you don't to, have that experience in both sides. You've got to understand how your broad and grand ideas mm. actually work in practice. Mm. And, and how, how people will interpret them as well, yeah. I mean, that, which is a massive, massive part to it. Yeah, and if you're writing, you shouldn't be writing planning policies or you should be writing them in a way that makes them easier to apply and understand mm. rather than more complex. Mm. Again, if you, once you get to 20 pages of a DDO for a particular area, I think you should go back and have a look at and see mm. whether that's really going to be helpful. You know, it's bad, I think, when you read a policy two or three times and you still don't understand it and you have to keep reading it and actually underline yep. every second word to interpret it. It's Yep. And, that's, and, and then you wonder how this, the normal person, the lay person, um, can interpret that. It's, it's incredible. And also sometimes policies have what I think are pretty outrageous um, value statements in there. Mm. Very much so. But, um, yeah, and, and, and again... You, you just question how they can get through the sort of filter because there's things in there that, you know, um, I mean, again, I read a 
policy the other day about a particular outer suburb, which was saying this is, uh, you know, this suburb is world class in terms of its neighbourhood character, and this is highly valued by the community. And it's just, you know, you go out there and you say, really? Mm. It might be nice, but let's not pretend it's, you know, sort of. The... You're talking about Danny Nong. No, I'm not talking about Dan. Because <laughs> I was actually reasonably pleasantly surprised when I went out to Dandenong on Monday, uh, at least the area I saw. How critical is an active and objective press in reporting on city planning issues? Uh, I would have thought it's, it's, it's very, very important. And I'd also contend that we do not have it at the moment. Um, for, for whatever reason, um, planning journalism in this state is completely, seems to be dominated by, again, this sort of anti-VCAT, anti-urban consolidation, pro-neighbourhood character um, agenda. And there isn't any real attempt to bring balance into it. Uh, Every reporting on a development is put forward as being, oh, VCAT approves a horrendous development. How do we know it's horrendous? Because one of the objectors said it was horrendous. Mm. And they get reported and there's no attempt made to say, well, what does the other side think? Yeah. Or to actually even read the decision and say, well, this is what the decision balanced. So it's it's completely sensationalised and it's not trying, I don't think, to be fair. It's really just, again, look, this is probably a problem with journalism, mainstream journalism generally. It's singing to the, preaching to the converted. Yeah. In the same way, you're not going to get the Herald Sun running pro-refugee um, pieces, mm-hmm. you're not going to find the age running pieces that suggest that, uh, you know, perhaps the people who live in leafy suburbs of Stonington, Stonington, Burundara and so on and so forth should lighten up a bit. How do we get new ideas into the planning space, Nick? Uh, we've talked previously about experimental suburbs. What would you like to see? Ooh, jetpack. No, we've had that. We've had that before. Flying cars. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, look. Yeah, I don't know how we get new ideas, and I think that we've got a. I think again, people tend to get a little bit insular. There's a sort of the idea about well, Melbourne, world's most livable city. Therefore, let's just keep replicating what we've done in the past. I don't think you can just replicate what you've done in the past, and you've got to look. Again, look outside the box, look at what new things are being done in cities and in um, societies to see if they work. So I, I felt like, for example, the not this FIPLA conference, the last one where I was, I helped, I presented a session on dystopia and I find that fascinating. And I think it was Will Bromfield um, did an analysis of um, Detroit which, you know, was one of America's biggest cities and is now this collapsed urban wasteland. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that they were doing to get it back to, you know, some sort of semblance of an operationing society and some great ideas like, for example, what have we got? Well, we've got lots of land that no one wants. So what are we going to do? We're going to give it to people. We're going to give it to people with a good idea. We're going to say, here's, you know, a hectare of, you know, what used to be inner urban land well, you can take it and you can make it a, a, a you know, a, an organic farm or you can mm. do things that are innovative and require large areas of land that you couldn't do in another city. And we're going to attract 
you know, people who are not well accommodated in other cities of America to come and try this new thing. So that's the type of thing you need. If you want, rather than just churning out the same suburb, same different version of the same suburb over and over and over and over again. Nowhere land. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just, but it's just replicating it. Go and try something different and see whether that has an effect. See whether you get, you don't have to have a hundred of the same. You can Mm. have 90 of the same and 10 that are different. And that's where I think this idea about livability versus lovability comes into play because I think some of those suburbs that, suburbs within Melbourne or Sydney or any other state, the ones that are deemed to be most livable tick a lot of boxes, but are they lovable? I mean, perhaps the the suburbs that aren't meeting the livability criteria are the ones that have the most culture and the most um, the interesting places, you know. It's, it's a very interesting concept. Yeah. It's also a great name for a, a song or a, mm, an it album. Is, isn't it? I mm. can just see it's probably the best album Prince never released, Lovability. <laughs> but um, yeah, I look, I, I agree. I think again, people, everything. The trouble is when you start applying or start assessing something is that you inevitably assess, you know, the sort of what the majority like, mm. what the broad, what, what most people find. I suppose there are some things that are universal, but there are a lot of things that are not. Mm. What we need to be recognising is, again, what you might find livable might not be what other people want. And you need to allow for areas to evolve or to change or for people to, again, make their own choices about that, what they want and what they, where they want to live, whether mm. it be, I like living in a, an area that's got pubs and loud music and I, or I like being in an area that's silent and it's got trees. You need everything. And if you just try and define it and say, no, there's only one path to um, nirvana here, well, you'll end up with, I think, blandness. Mm. Nick, how do we make, uh, talking about Jess's point about lovability, how do we make cities more conducive to romance? <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you're definitely asking the wrong person. Um, yes. Uh uh, how do you make, again, I think if people, uh, let, let me, let me put forward two ideas. The first is, is that people who are very busy and spending all their energy on just trying to live are usually not that conducive to romance. It's, uh, I think I learned that once I had kids. So we got to give people more time, not traveling, not you know, not being on public transport, not being stuck on the, the West Gate at rush hour and more time actually being at home or being with people they like. Uh, so that's one way. And then the other way is, again, I think romance is um, usually helped by doing things, again, that you like and that, uh, that you can share with people of same interest. I thought we nearly had him on that question. Oh. He seemed slightly stumped to start with. <laughs> well, again, romance. <laughs> I'm sure my wife would tell you that that's an area I have no expertise. <laughs> and Nick, just to finish up, how do you refresh and relax? Uh, I've always, if I, I've always found music to be the best way for me of uh, relaxing. Um, I think again, you charitably describe me as being a musician. I'm really someone who does it as a hobby. I've been lucky in the past to be able to uh, uh, 
become friends with and play music with people who are actually musically talented. So I've managed to ride on their coattails. But I find that, again, the, the profession that we're in, both being a lawyer but also being a planner, it's a very cerebral profession. It's the old sort of idea of your left brain and your right brain. I can't remember what controls what. But being able to move from something that's driven by intellect and then move into something that's driven more by emotion. So mm. I, what I like doing is saying, I don't have to think about this. I just like, you know, the sound that a Fender Jazzmaster makes through a Bassman 410 when it's cranked up to 10. And I don't have to analyse <laughs> it. Let's just do it. Mm. And I can sing songs with particularly unintellectual lyrics as well and enjoy them. Well, listeners, we've been we've had the pleasure of uh, the company of Nick Tweedy, a true Renaissance man. <laughs> thank you, Nick, and thank you, Jess, and thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me. It's been a it's been a joy. <laughs>